Direct from the astronomy capital of Australia comes the Astro Podcast. An irregular series of interviews with interesting astro people about the projects and passions that keep their eyes to the sky. Hi, Alison here from Astro Podcast. This week we interview Dr. Fred Watson, but before then I just want to remind you that if you hear anything in the podcast that sounds interesting, there's probably a link in the show links on the uh, Astro Podcast site. So if you go over to www.astropodcast.com, look for podcast number four, Fred Watson, and check out the links. Anyway, I'll be back to have a chat after the podcast. Hi, Alison here from Astro Podcast, and I am talking to the esteemed, yes, I'm going to talk you up, <laughs> Dr. Fred Watson. Yeah. Thank and you. Think, oh, nice to be here, Alison. Thank you. Oh, nice to be esteemed be as well. <laughs> I, I hide, hold you in high regard. Um, don't shake your head. <laughs> no, there's no need to at all. It's all, it's all. But I have seen you play the guitar, Yes. and I will be attaching a video of you okay. from the Science in the Pub from last year. Oh, really? I actually oh, took a video heavens. of you. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just good. a little snippet of it. Good. Um, so, Fred, we usually talk about, we start out talking about what your uh, history is, but we try and place you for people that don't know you, and I mm. can't believe anyone doesn't know mm-hmm. you. And your your official title is Astronomer in Charge? It is, yeah. I, I'm still the Astronomer in Charge of the, Ang- the Australian Astronomical <laughs> you Observatory. Nearly, nearly. nearly, nearly. Yes. It's, too, it's been in that job too long. Yeah. Mm. Oh, which I've been and go AAO. And <laughs> yes, AAO, which I've been since 1995. Wow. So it's, it's actually quite a while. So what does that job involve? Just just a quick well, look, it's it's metamorphosed a number of times, and now I have to say it's really the fun end of the job. So um, what I do is I have a small group that I manage uh, at the AO, which are actually who are Schmidt Telescope Observers. So um, half my job, or maybe a bit less than half, is project manager for the RAVE survey, RAVE being the radial velocity experiment, uh, to try and... Uh, dig up some of the, the hidden relics of our own galaxy, in other words, to, to try and understand our galaxy. So that's, um, that's uh, basically a, a significant fraction of the job. But um, there's also a sort of corporate side which revolves around things like site protection. So I chair a small working group that um, endeavours to keep... Is that uh, where side... you dig <laughs> trenches? No, 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 not trenches, not with uh, cannon or no, rifles or anything. Right. It's it's about keeping the skies dark. Great. Uh, because um, one of the big threats to a, an, an institution like, not just the Australian Astronomical Observatory, but Siding Spring Observatory generally, is the encroachment of, mm. of light pollution on our skies. Uh, bearing in mind that often the objects that we're looking at are only 1% brighter than the natural night sky background. Mm. So you can imagine that if the sky background is artificially enhanced by whatever uh, light pollution there is, then it just swamps the signal out completely and you basically become unviable. That's the worst-case scenario. But um, what we what we have tried to do in the 12 years or so that this committee's been 
operational is to maintain a watching brief on uh, on developments around. We have a legal framework in place. There's various legal instruments that uh, control what you can and can't do. And I have to say, Coonabarabran is our biggest ally in that regard because, by and yeah. large, uh, lighting in Coonabarabran is very good. We've got uh, the Warrenbungle Shire Council as one of our greatest supporters. And... Um, so, uh, and I think people generally recognise that there's a good reason for keeping lights under control. We don't want everybody to go around in the dark. We don't want the place to look dim and gloomy, but we do want light to go downwards rather than upwards. Yeah. So that's part of uh, a part of the job. And the other part, uh, I guess, the biggest part is, um, is is science outreach, of which I do quite a lot. Um, a lot that essentially spills over into my own time. In fact, I often do it when I'm asleep uh, <laughs> because it seems to take up so much of my time. Sure, sure. So that's what the astronomer in charge does. Wow. And a lot it's not really, no. I keep worrying somebody's going to find out that, you know, I should be doing more <laughs> or. <laughs> but nobody will listen to this, will they? <laughs> no, that's right. No. Um, so let's, let's jump in the Wayback Machine and, and take it back to a very young Fred. Yeah. When you. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, it's getting like a <laughs> sitting you on the couch. Now tell me, Fred, all about where did where it did, all happen? Yeah, where did it all come from? Um, well, look, I uh, I'm very very old. Uh, so for your listeners, no, you have to understand that. And um, I uh, was born in the north of England on the outskirts of a city called Bradford. In fact, um, the street where as well it was a road where I was born. Until the uh, end of the 19th century was called Thief Scare Lane, because you were scared of thieves. That's where all the thieves hung out. And then uh, when the place became more corporate and, and, and a city uh, in the late 19th century, the local authority decided to, um, to improve the name. So they upgraded it, and it then became Cemetery Road. So I was actually <laughs> born in Cemetery Road. Uh, and to add insult to injury, my parents called me Fred. Uh, there's actually a good reason for that, which I won't go into. But, uh, so I arrived, um, actually, uh, while uh, things were still, quite ugly things were still happening in Europe, there was a guy called Adolf Hitler and his cronies who were still <laughs> still uh, running a mark in Europe, um, but that all came to an end. So uh, basically, when I was growing up, it was very much in the post-war era. Yeah. And uh, at that time, science was kind of in the ascendancy. You know, everybody thought there was going to be another world war, that it would be fought on very highly technological grounds. So science education in schools was very much the imperative. Uh, but also the fact that um, that the previous World War had been uh, fought very much in a techn technological way. That also meant that um, things like the space age could mm. could actually uh, yeah. kick off. Uh, so the first artificial Earth satellite, Sputnik 1, launched 4th of October 1957. Um, that, that was the period when I was at school. I was just starting high school then. And all my peers and colleagues were absolutely mad on space travel and space flight and all very cluey about science. There was a comic that we all read called The Eagle, which had a guy called Dan Dare, pilot of the future. <laughs> and we were all just captivated with the whole thing. New Scientist started in 1957. Patrick Moore's TV programme, The Sky at Night, started Ooh. in 1957 and he's still going. Great eyebrows. Yeah, well, he's got the eyebrows to die for. <laughs> yeah. um, so... 
all this was happening, and um, I guess everybody was at least aware of science and the possibility of space exploration. We were all, you know, we all expected that we'd be wandering around on the planets well before the 1980s yeah. uh, by then. Um, and I suppose what happened is that my um, peers and colleagues kind of got sensible and grew up and did... Um, reasonably productive things like uh, becoming doctors and lawyers and uh, mm. engineers, uh, but I just never, I never grew up. So I was hooked on it from a very young age, and it was when I was about sixteen that I decided that I wanted to pursue astronomy as a career. Sure, sure. So you you went the physics route, or yeah, uh, physics. Uh, I mean, physics was what I was good at at school. I mm -hmm. was not actually very good at maths, and that later. Um, when I got to university, it let me down because I, w despite the fact that my degree is in mathematics and physics, it was <laughs> it was a very much a scrape through on the mathematics. Uh, it the, doesn't say anything on the paper though, does it? No, it doesn't. Doesn't say that. There's nobody knows that it was the sixth attempt that I actually oh finally passed. That you can only do that in Scotland. It was a Scottish university. In fact, Scotland's oldest university, which is celebrating its 600th birthday this year, uh, the University of St Andrews. Scottish universities had a system that that actually allowed you to, uh, to to find your own level and to kind of fail if oh, need wow. be, but still... It was very progressive. It was it? indeed, and still is. Um, but so, so, yes, when I was at school, just going back, sure. uh, it was um, astronomy was my interest. I used to have a, uh, one of the, the members of the staff. Uh, he, had a, he was a history teacher, actually, but he had a three-and-a-half-inch cook refracting telescope which he used to lend me uh, to, um, to to observe with so I used to have this thing in in the front garden at home and um, one night when I was observing with this telescope a large policeman called by and, oh. and said uh, <laughs> we've heard from a, from your neighbours that you've got a bazooka in oh, the garden dear. he wasn't interested in looking through people's windows he thought it was a no, weapon you know because it was the post-war period people thought yes. things like that and I, I told him it wasn't loaded and that <laughs> it's was, right. all okay so so um so yes so it was very much an interest so I went to university to do astronomy and in fact that's why I went to Scotland because um, apart from University College London only the three then Scottish universities did astronomy really uh, as a first degree yeah wow. so I wound up at St Andrews but changed to maths and physics because I kind of figured astronomy if I wasn't if I turned out not to be very good at it yes. it might limit my career possibilities as it happened I turned out not to be very good at, at mathematics either mm. uh, but the physics kind of helped me through and in the end I actually I've forgotten about this, but I got the class medal for first first year astronomy oh. uh, <laughs> by by sleight of hand, I'm sure. Um, despite the maths. Despite the maths, yeah. So uh, that push, you know, that um, essentially changed the paradigm slightly because it meant I wasn't going to go through a standard process of a good honours degree, which I didn't have. Mm. I did have a degree, but it wasn't a good honours degree. Um, then to a PhD and then to a postdoc, which was which is still really the normal mode yes. of education in astronomy and in most of the sciences. So um, I went into industry. I actually worked for a couple of years uh, for a very long established and um, venerable optical company called Sir Howard Grubb Parsons and Company Limited. And they were in Newcastle on Tyne and they uh, actually dated back 150 years. They, they, mm. uh, Howard Grubb was, um, well, they, one of their early products was the Great Melbourne Telescope, which you may know is oh. currently being restored. It yes. was 
burned at Mount Stromlo, but is mm. now back in Melbourne being restored. So um, a company with an, a huge history. And my speciality was optics, so I kind of figured out that I knew a bit about optics, okay. which I have to say is also a product of the Second World War because... Um, if you wanted to build a telescope in those days, you, or if you wanted to do astronomy, you didn't have, you couldn't go and buy no. a telescope. You had to build one. Mm. Uh, but the, conveniently, had been this world war, which meant that there were government surplus shops full of all the optical bits and pieces that you needed to sure. do that. So I, that was great because it gave me a bit of a familiarity with hands-on optics. And then when I worked at Grubb Parsons, uh, making large telescope mirrors, I was responsible for testing them. Um, then um, that that sort of cemented that. My uh, the, the the mirror that I worked on most closely um, is still operational. It's in a telescope. It's a 1.8 meter telescope at Asiago in Italy, uh, and I was reunited with it about uh, three years ago after 40 years. Nearly. Wow! Yeah, when uh, <laughs> when I was responsible for it. Grubb Parsons, by the way, made the Anglo-Australian telescope optics and the UK Schmidt telescope well, optics. Go. So it's it's all you know comes around in big are they, circles. Are they still in existence? No, they no. closed in uh, 1987. They, the, the, the last two big telescopes they made were the 3.8 metre UKIRT, the UK Infrared Telescope, which mm -hmm. is still operational in Hawaii, and then the 4.2 metre William Herschel Telescope in La Palma. Okay. But after that, uh, because they relied on you know orders from governments with big ticket items, mm. uh, there were no more you know, no more telescopes that they could see on the horizon. Mm. And so essentially they closed down. Um, in a way, it was inevitable because their working practices were were firmly entrenched in the 19th century. Mm. Um, that, you know, they, I, I still used machines and instruments that Howard Grubb had used in the 1860s, uh, spherometers and things like that. <laughs> so it was all, it was That's very amazing. traditional. And actually they... They they had trouble moving into the modern era. When I was at Grubb Parsons, this is in the late 60s, mm. uh, they were the prime contractor for a spacecraft called... Uh, actually, no, it was for an instrument to be carried on board a spacecraft. Mm -hmm. um, the spacecraft was called TD-1, uh, which was uh, an acronym for Thor Delta, which was going to be the launch vehicle. They didn't have very imaginative names. <laughs> right, and, yes. and the experiment was it was an ultraviolet uh, telescope to look at, uh, to do astronomical observation in mm -hmm. the ultraviolet above the atmosphere. It's called S68. Don't ask me why it was called S68, but it was. But Grubb Parsons um, had to build this thing. And, you know, they weren't used to building anything that didn't weigh 20 tons and this was all um, space grade titanium and, mm. and aluminium and in fact the optics were made of aluminium and they really wow. didn't come to terms with that no. I, um, and in the end they lost the contract in fact it went to Hawker Siddeley Dynamics yeah. just because it was such a different technology from what they've been doing for the last hundred years you know sure sure so anyway. so um, into a stop, you know, research astronomy or observational yes. astronomy, or yeah. What what actually happened was, um, so I worked for two years at, at Grubb Parsons in mm -hmm. Newcastle on Tyne, and then uh, I was always, um, I, I always had the feeling that I hadn't really covered myself in glory at university, <laughs> and thought I should try and uh, um, have a have another stab at it. So I, I went back to St Andrews to do a master's degree, which mm -hmm. was in asteroid orbits. I was actually doing research right. uh, on uh, orbital dynamics. But the tricky bit was 
Um, I didn't have any visible means of support for that. So uh, that's when I became an out-of-work musician. Ah, uh, because, yes, I was going to ask what yeah, you yeah, came that, up with. That, that was the height of the, the folk boom in uh, the, mm-hmm. end, the, end, the late 60s. And anybody, um, you didn't have to be able to sing, uh, but if you could play a guitar... <laughs> Uh, and make the right kind of noises, then you were very much in. And and I couldn't sing, but I actually could could handle a guitar reasonably <laughs> well. And so um, I used to do a lot of stuff in the folk clubs in Scotland and the north of England. Um, I, I was actually half of a, a band called the Bradford and East Fife Ready Mix Concrete Company, which <laughs> seemed like a good idea at the time, but we were always getting pushed out the gigs always went to another band called the humble bums mm. and we thought it's because their name's shorter yeah but the humble bums were jerry rafferty oh uh, and, and a, good. yeah and a guy called billy connolly i don't oh, know, don't know what me. happened to him no, <laughs> but, <or> yeah <laughs> no yes um, i mean jerry rafferty was he was magical on the guitar yeah. jerry could never sorry billy was never a great musician no. but but he had the patter yes anyway right. so so i supported myself actually by teaching but as, uh, also by doing these gigs and things sure. and then wound up eventually with um, an MSc in astronomy and a good background in orbital dynamics yes. and so that's when I went when I joined the Royal Observatories I, I um, moved to Sussex in the south of England mm-hmm. and um, got a job at uh, the Royal Greenwich Observatory which was then not in Greenwich but in Sussex mm. working in an institution called Her Majesty's Nautical Almanac Office, <laughs> uh, working on planetary orbits, yes. which was it was pretty it was interesting stuff, but a bit r- routine. You know, mm. people kind of had sorted out the solar system a hundred years before, yes. um, and so there wasn't much whiz bang research in it. Mm. Although there is now, because you know everybody's really interested in the evolution of planetary orbits and and how the solar system got to be like it 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 is mm. and how what it's going to look like in the future anyway uh, i was there f- again for actually about three and a half years and then transferred within the because by then i was a public servant within uh, government service up to the royal observatory in edinburgh where i started working uh, on the dynamics of our own galaxy the, the way stars actually orbit Sure. So that was a lot more interesting, our galaxy being this huge aggregation of 400 billion stars or so with lovely spiral arms and all the rest of it. And I worked on um, just how the spiral arms were behaving and how uh, how the, ga- yeah. the, the, the galaxy itself Which is. Which you could tell from yeah. the last podcast, I had no idea about. Well, there you go. Yes, <laughs> no, there you go. Um, so we, So that was working with a a guy called Victor Klub, who was a bit of a heretic. He had some wild ideas about galactic structure and mm. galactic motions that most of the community didn't share. Um, and in, in the event, it turns out that uh, he was partly right and they were partly right. Yeah. Uh, now we know that the galaxy is much more complex than we ever thought it was. Mm. But uh, Victor Klub actually is very noteworthy. Uh, he's um, very... He he never got the credit he deserved for what was probably his greatest um, piece of work, which he did with a, a man called Bill Napier, who was also at World Observatory Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And that was to um, put together what they called a theory of terrestrial catastrophism, which was, uh, this is in 1979, the wild idea that the Earth's history had been modified by bombardments from asteroids, oh. including the possibility that there'd be mass extinctions because of that, which nobody wow. had suggested before. Yeah. But they're, in fact, they're... Um, 
their work was essentially it wasn't quite stolen but it was uh they were done down by a, an american group mm. who basically stole the thunder Oh, from what should have been very much a sort of Scottish, uh, uh, wow, Scottish yeah. invention. It was, um, it was, they were working at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh at the time, as I was too. Yeah. I was working with them, but not actually on that. Sure. So we've now got to 1931. Yes, that's it's right. going Where terribly slowly here. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. Got, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, um, well, it, it, no, it's incredibly interesting, um, especially when talking about the stuff that you don't, here these days, you know, the, the evolution of astronomy. Yeah. Not that you're old, but you've seen no, a lot. You've yes, seen it go right. from from photo to CCD, yes, you right. know, and all of that stuff. But but that that's um in a sense what actually um if I've got any reputation at all in astronomy, it's it's actually on those lines. Because um in nineteen eighty two uh at that time, the Royal Observatory Edinburgh was operating the UK Schmidt Telescope here in Australia. And everybody who was an astronomer on the staff was expected to basically uh, spend some time working at the Colonial Outstation. Yes. There was one in Hawaii, one in Australia. And um, the Hawaiian guys all did infrared astronomy, which I didn't know anything about at the time. <laughs> right. um, whereas it was photographic wide field astronomy here in Australia, which was fairly closely allied to what I'd done. So I came to Australia in 1982 on a three-year tour of duty, but um, we just worked out uh, that a really good and neat use for this Schmidt telescope might be to fit it with optical fibres, which was very much a new technique then. The first um, what we call multi-fibre observations on telescopes were only made in December 1979. So it was, it was all the idea being that what you can do is use the fibres to take light from your target stars or galaxies mm. and line it up on the slit of a spectrograph into a neat straight line so you get this beautiful barcode of information on these objects, not just one at a time, mm. but you get them hundreds at once. And that's actually what the AAO has become known for, that yeah. particular work. It's, it's just gone through an upgrade, hasn't it? Too? It's doing that actually as we speak, yes. Yeah. Something called Hermes is the next big thing. The upgrade a couple of years ago was to something called AAO. But anyway, we, we um, a, a guy called John Dor and myself, John lived in Coonabarabran. He was the former astronomer in charge at the Schmidt Telescope, now sadly no longer with us. Mm. But uh, he and I had this mad idea of putting fibre optics on the Schmidt telescope. Everybody said, why do you want to do that? It's a perfectly good telescope doing <laughs> perfectly right. good lovely photography, pictures. lovely pictures. <laughs> yes. uh, um, so anyway, we persevered with that. And uh, it, it turned out that we were really at the start of a revolution, not, mm. not necessarily because of us, although we played a small part in it, but the revolution is in the way that astronomical data are collected. Sure. So it literally used to be one spectrum at a time, uh, in those days. Mm. And then along came fibre optics and suddenly you could do it. Uh, in fact, the first system I built, um, I think had 39 fibres, but we now are on a system that's got more than 100. Mm. And on the AAT, there is the, as we've just been saying, the upgraded system, which has 400 yes. fibres. So you, you can look at 400 objects at once and it means you can amass um, vast quantities of data and build up a big picture of what's going on. It's exactly like a population census where you go and knock on people's doors and write down their religion and their ethnic background and all that sort of thing. Mm. Only we do it for galaxies and stars, but we don't knock on doors. We just you know, <laughs> use the barcode of information. Sure. And it, it, um, it's totally transformed the way astronomy is done. 
So that's been, I guess, the biggest change that I've seen See, in, in you my You are known for something, Fred. Well, yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> well, um, moving away from, from that side of things, let's have a chat about the tours that you okay. you yeah. run and, and go on. And um, on your website, you have quite a few. There's mm-hmm. one that really interests me, um, and I, I saw the talk that you did last year about the auroras. And yes. one of my bucket list things is to see both in one year if I can. <laughs> both the aurora borealis and the aurora yeah. australis. Yeah, some way, some way that's <clears throat> yeah, on, the, right. on sure the list. The easiest way is to get on the International Space Station. Well, that would be my next choice. <laughs> but you need about $35 million. Yeah, I'd to have to lose about 20 kilos too, I think. Doubt it, I doubt it. Anyway. But, but um, yeah, tell us, tell us more well, about the tours. That well, you the tours, um, they've sort of emerged partly because uh, I've got a big interest in the history of astronomy. Mm. Um, and about uh, um, eight years ago now, I wrote a book called Stargazer, The Life and Times of the Telescope. It's a history of the telescope. And uh, it turns out, when you look at this, that the, the telescope, the way it evolved... Uh, the way it arose back in the, seven, um, the early 17th century and the way it's evolved over the decades and centuries since then mm-hmm. um, is it involves some really interesting places uh, like the telescope first emerged from the woodwork uh, in um, 1608 in Holland it, that's where it first appears in the historical record there might have been ones before that mm. but it's only at that time that the telescope appears and uh, that was in the hague in holland which is actually quite a nice place there's okay. a there's the a, a building called um, the binnenhof which is the seat of the netherlands parliament and it's a beautiful old building and when i was writing this i thought it would be fantastic to go to some of these places and actually take groups of people to them and so uh, that was a thought that stayed kind of <laughs> germinating in my mind. But then meanwhile, I had this phone call from a, 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 somebody who basically was a, a, tour, um, a, a tour guide, tour manager, and somebody whose background was in travel. Uh, and she said, uh, there's an eclipse coming up in 2012. This is years ago, you know. I thought, 2012? I probably won't make it that far. Uh, uh, would you like to lead an eclipse tour? And I said, um, I'd be delighted to, uh, because my diary is empty at the moment. Uh, but I said, um, I'd really like to take a tour around Europe to look at some of the places that were important in the history of the telescope. She said, that's fine, we'll do that. Uh, oh, by the way, she said, would you like to have a practice run with a tour to Peru? Uh, so oh. in 2007, we went um, <laughs> and did the first tour I was involved with, which was around historical ar- um, astronomical archaeology. Yeah. Sorry, archaeoastronomy sites uh, in Peru. Wow. Of which one was particularly important, the, the 13 Towers of Chanquillo, which had just been recognized as being probably a solar observatory at the time. Really? An extraordinary place. It's, I mean, we could spend... Two hours talking. Yeah, about I was like, I'll hold myself an, an back because that's really interesting. Another time. We'll Another time. So that sort of developed. Then we did the telescope tours. We did something called Stargazer. That went so well. We did something called Stargazer 2. <laughs> um, and then uh, I've always had an interest in the Aurora Borealis because mm. we used to see them occasionally from uh, Scotland, from Edinburgh. Especially when you came out of the pub, you could see really good aurora <laughs> you know, flashing all over the sky. Uh, but um, I thought it would be great to take a tour group 
to see the Aurora Borealis. So we yes. advertised a tour which sold out very quickly. So what we did uh, at the beginning of this year was put two tours back to back um, around most Scandinavian, in fact, I think all Scandinavian countries. We were we started off in northern, far northern Norway, mm. where we got the most wonderful auroral sightings because you're right inside the Arctic Circle. It's the middle of winter. Uh, there's not that much daylight, but mm. uh, the aurora is, is fantastic. Um, yeah. um, went through Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, Finland, Estonia, <laughs> um, to wow. take in not just aurorae but some historical telescopes as well, because sure. there are there are all sorts of very interesting places there that people are interested in seeing. Sure. So, I mean, for the rest of the year, what what tours do you have? You've got coming up. You've got the, the eclipse. Yeah, the eclipse tour. That's right. Which um, we, we've kind of branched out a bit now because we've. We've got um, other some other scientists involved. Paul Willis, who you might know, he's a, a former Catalyst presenter, mm. now director of the Royal uh, Australian Institution in Adelaide. He he's a paleontologist, so we've tacked on a, a dinosaur tour, dinosaur yes. fossil tour into the uh, <laughs> uh, into the eclipse tour, wow. uh, which I won't be on actually, but I'll be doing mm. the eclipse. We we did something similar with the um, actually with the uh, Aurora tour because we took in Iceland. And we had a special guest there, a man called Nick Petford, who's actually a volcanologist, a very well-known volcanologist. Mm. He made a movie called The Volcano That Stopped the World. <laughs> uh, and I was quite interested in this because it stopped yeah. me as well when... Uh, that's how it's pronounced. Yeah, that's, that's right. the one. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, that, um, that basically shut down European airspace and mm. grounded me in Greenwich back in 2010. So I wanted to see this volcano and... Um, well, we we had a volcanologist um, telling us all about it, which was great. So it's um, it's become very much a part of what I do, and I'm delighted to say that uh, the management of the observatory uh, sees this as beneficial because um, yeah. you know because it it, it it brings the observatory's name to a wider public. It's part of science outreach. It's mm. an unusual part, but uh, but actually it seems to to work very yeah, well. Yeah, I think uh, on a personal level, science tourism is probably one of the the ways to go yeah, yeah. Um, because you get people interested and especially combining science you know yes, cross over right. there because people that are generally interested in that are interested in or maybe it's just me <laughs> it's like dinosaurs no, no, the stars look, you're and, right you're quite yeah. right and the kind of people who come on these tours are <clears throat> people who are interested in everything yes. you know it's not just the history of astronomy they're interested in the, the wider picture which yeah. you need to see to be able to put everything in context so Yes, yeah, it's, it's um you should come on one of our tours. Oh, I am um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm do you a special deal. <laughs> gesticulating at, at my partner who's sitting over there looking my, the other way. And my phone is ringing. <laughs> oh, um so <laughs> he's giving oh, me the eyebrows. Good. Yeah. Uh, just get fine. it. <laughs> um oh, I'm banged into that. So lastly, I think we uh, what we can talk about is um Apart from, well, it might be science outreach. What is the thing that drives you at the moment? That your passion is it your music? Yeah. Is it your? Is there some message you want to get out there? Soapbox <laughs> you want to climb on? Yes and no. I mean, um, look, I, I'm excited about pretty well everything at the moment. Yes. Um, the music. Uh, I, my involvement now is, um, you know, I, I still do a bit of folk singing when the time arises but we now live in an era where you've actually got to have quite a good voice to make make your way and, unfortunately the internet is and, and i don't <laughs> yeah. so that's all right so i just do, do it for a bit of fun but i'm also involved 
Um, my first love has always been classical music, and sure. I don't know, you may not know, but um, there's a very well-known Australian composer called Ross Edwards, and a few years ago, in fact over a decade ago, we collaborated on his Fourth Symphony, which is a choral work. It mm -hmm. has a, about 90 people in the choir and, uh, and, and a full symphony orchestra, and it's a kind of musical tour through the sky. Um, sure. And so um, I wrote the, the words for that. Uh, but that's kind of taken off in a funny way as well, because uh, this weekend, actually, I'm touring with uh, the Griffin Ensemble, which is a small, smaller ensemble, and we're playing music by a man called Ermas Sizask, who is one of Estonia's leading composers, who is also an astronomer. Really? Um, wow. So he's written um, a, a piece, a long piece, called The Southern Sky, which is what we're touring with this weekend. So there's that side of it is still ongoing, the kind of art-scientist crossover, which mm. I've always been very keen on. But in science itself, mm. um, I, I feel very lucky to be involved with science outreach because at the moment, science is just going through a golden age, uh, particularly astronomy and space science. Mm. Um, you know, we're seeing all the this wonderful exploration of the solar system. We've got um, uh, Curiosity about to land on Mars well in August. Mm. And, and who knows what's going to come from that. We've got New Horizons on the way to Pluto. Um, there's still great stuff coming from Cassini in orbit around Saturn. Um, that's just sort of really providing so much excitement uh, mm. in the, in our understanding of the solar system and it and it is compounded by what's happening in our studies of the wider universe we're we're just on the brink of a uh, a new generation of of large telescopes these so-called ELTs yes. extremely large telescopes <laughs> i love the naming convention yeah, yeah. with these i'm very sorry that um that the uh, uh, ESO's project of OWL got renamed. OWL was the overwhelmingly large <laughs> yeah, telescope, sorry. but they decided to... Mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so that's all, you know, within the next decade, uh, maybe 15 years, we'll start seeing results from those. Yeah. And one of the biggest um, uh, discoveries, perhaps, that might come from all this, uh, both the solar system exploration and the... Uh, and the new telescopes is the possibility of finding life beyond beyond the earth at Ooh. the moment as you as you know there's a life is not known anywhere beyond earth and i think we're just starting to get to the stage where the technology will allow us to find it if it's there and so, so even though you're a scientist hmm. do you have an opinion <laughs> well it's not an opinion it's a kind of guess really yeah. <laughs> you know uh the visible universe, the, the observable universe contains about 10 to the power of 22 stars. It's 10 times more than all the grains of sand on all the beaches of the Earth. Carl Sagan was quite right. Absolutely. Um, 10 to the power of 22 is a very large number of stars. And we now know that um, most stars have planets. Mm. Uh, you know, you, perhaps you could qualify that and say most stars like the sun have planets. <laughs> yes. uh, but, uh, but we know that it's not an unusual thing. So uh, the the chances seem to be very good. Um, mm. It's still, you know, we still don't know what triggers life to start. So that's yes. that's that's the big unknown. But I think we might know the answer to that within within uh, certainly within a generation. Mm. I, I'm kind of hoping that I'll live long enough yes, to see yes. these discoveries because I'm was, sort of at the wrong end of my career. Now. <laughs> I was going to say is that you know what do you hope they do discover, finalise, you know. 
Yeah, well, that's that's going to be one of them. But I think there are. I think there's more than that, and this is something else that excites me. And mm. I have to say, none of these are things that I'm working on. The, no, the, yeah. the, the science I work on is very much to do with uh, our understanding of the history of our own galaxies, mm. the, the 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 Rave Project, um, trying to measure the speeds and chemical compositions of half a million stars, which we're more this or less a mere drop in the ocean. A mere drop in the ocean yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's exciting in itself. Yes. But I think there's so much else that's interesting going on. One of the really fun places that um been to a couple of times on the tours is the Large Hadron Collider ah, um, yeah. in, in Geneva. And um, there's so much exciting work going on there, um, not just about finding the Higgs boson, the um, particle that gives everything else its mass. Yeah, that mass. went quite really quickly, didn't it? Well, it, it, yeah, I think, I, think, I think by the end of the year we'll, yeah. we'll know. Um, but the, but this, this, they are probing... Um, physics at its most basic level. So that there's the whole possibility of completely new physics coming sure. from uh, from experiments like that. Mm. And new physics is really interesting because it takes you in directions that we we hadn't really thought of yeah. before. Or worry about that it might undo things that we are well be at a level that we don't normally. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, if you when you think about it, uh, perhaps. If you look back to 1905, when Einstein formulated the special theory yeah, of relativity, <laughs> that was, but that was new physics then. Yes, uh, yeah. And it doesn't contradict Newtonian dynamics. It just um, tells you that things change when you get under extreme circumstances. And, and there might well be similar things now. I mean, yes. relativity is very much the foundation on which astronomy is built, actually. Mm. And uh, without it, we couldn't make the steps that we do. Uh, but it it still might have holes in it. We we indeed yes. we know it we know it has at some level because it's incompatible with quantum physics. Yes, which we know is the way the world works on very small scales, and in fact not actually all that small. No, scale. I was going to say because then there's strings. Yes, air that's quotes right. Below yeah. that, yeah. and then, you know what's what's all the way down. One one of yeah. the things that I mean we're now going off into flights of fantasy, but one of the things that really excites me is. There's a whole new science called quantum biology, which you may not have come no, across. No, I haven't. But it turns out that quantum processes actually play a part in uh, only a few are known so far, but there are probably more in biological processes. For example, in um, some of the, uh, the the navigation used by migrating birds, the magnetic field sensing, which seems mm. to be able to sense both the direction and the and the dip, the angle of the magnetic field, mm. uh, that seems to have quantum processes to actually taking place up yeah, behind the bird's <laughs> beak. Um, photosynthesis might well have uh, quantum effects wow. being important, and perhaps most, I think, most provocative of all, because I think this leads very much into the human regime. Uh, our sense of smell might actually be a quantum phenomenon. Goodness. Now, quantum physics is really interesting because it lets uh, things be in two places at the same time. Yes. Um, it lets things talk to each other at faster than the speed of light, and it suggests that at, at, at a very deep level, um, space and time don't actually exist. That space and time, as we see them, are something that emerge from mm. the quantum processes mm. 
but in reality they're not there. No. And that means that we could be sitting here That's right. in 2500 <laughs> BC yeah, that's right. or in uh, 3 billion AD, you know, um it just means that um we're part of something very much bigger mm. than current science is able to describe. And uh it's uh, you might call it deep physics. It's something that's perhaps underlying uh what physics we understand and of course it's not incompatible with that but but that to me is one of the most exciting things that um science is exploring and will do over the next 50 years um what is time how does time work you know things like that are really really interesting questions absolutely and um i think that's the kind of thing i hope i live long enough to see (laughs) yeah well you can hope, but it just seems like, you know, what is it, the Chinese dolls or whatever, you open one and there's, and there's another, another one inside. Well, that's absolutely no, yeah. right. You know, one of the questions I get asked on the radio is, uh, can we ever know everything? And the answer is probably not, because uh, there, there's always a new layer of of knowledge hidden below what we've, yes. what we've discovered already. And, and that was the... Uh, the uh, hypothetical question I asked my guy the other day was, yeah. what percentage of knowledge do you think we actually have? Yeah, <laughs> well, like, I, think, you know? I think we're just scratching the surface, yeah. to be honest. We have single digits, we both agreed. It's, yeah, you know, isn't that be, extraordinary? Yes. I mean, you know, considering how much we know now compared with what people knew 100 years ago, we've got a pretty good idea how the universe came into being. We've got a pretty good idea how how it's developed, how... Uh, the, the planets, the, the stars have originated and probably how living organisms have originated and yet we're still probably yep. only scratching the surface. <laughs> that's right. Well, I think that's a great great place to stop. It's a good place to stop. I, I, I feel comfortable <laughs> with that. Um, Fred, your website is? It is fredwatson.com.au. There you go. And uh, do you have anything else? Do you have a Twitter account? Um, I, I'm sure I do somewhere, but I never By look at that. Else. <laughs> Somebody else looks Someone else does that, that one. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for that. Thank you so much. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's great to come and talk to you. Thank you, Alison. Wasn't that a lot of fun? Fred's a great guy and very, very knowledgeable. And I'm sure we'll have him back another day to talk about his rave project just while I've got you there, we've got some exciting news coming up in Astro Podcast, so keep your ears and eyes peeled for announcements on Twitter, Facebook, and the webpage. And of course, um, make sure that you're subscribed to the newsletter because those people will find out first. So uh, yeah, some fairly exciting news. As always, here's a big begging plug to ask you to rate us on iTunes. It really does help interested people finding the podcast on iTunes and subscribing. I will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Astro Podcast. Why not leave a comment and rating on iTunes so other people can listen in too? If you want to nominate someone to be interviewed, then send an email to alison at astropodcast.com and she'll do her best to make it so.